Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Last time we were together, we spent time considering Paul's introductory thoughts to the church of Philippi, particularly his fond remembrance of them and the love that this inspired within him. And this was directly rooted, as we saw last week, in the fellowship that they had with him in the gospel of Jesus Christ from the first day of their interaction to the day that Paul was writing these words. And we traced that concept of fellowship, connected it, um, somewhat controversially one might say, to the idea of financial giving and to the support that the church had given to Paul faithfully since the beginning of his ministry. And we paid particular attention to that well-known confidence of Paul in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, that the one who began this good work would perform it, and considering the nature of that promise. And then we concluded with this thought, that our labor, our obedience, is never in vain in the Lord. That if we draw what I believe that passage is saying out to its fullest conclusion, we see Paul exuding a measure of confidence that the investment that they had put into the gospel would be an investment that would continue and that would touch lives from generation to generation. And Paul continues with this, what we might call this, this introductory flavor. He continues that here in verses 8 through 11. And we do jump right into the flow of context. To that end, I'm going to go back to verse 3. And we're going to read through verse 8 to pick up our exposition. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart insomuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. And this is where we'll pick up our exposition. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Paul carries this confidence in their fellowship in the gospel and in God's faithfulness to use their faithfulness to him again into expressions of how deeply their love for him has affected him personally, stating of just how greatly he longs after them all in what he calls the bowels of Jesus Christ. The word long after here is one that's not used very often in the Bible, nine times in fact, uh, two of those times in the book of Philippians, both speaking of great care and concern and love that's expressed one toward another. The Bible um, here, then within this context, Paul says that he longs after them in the bowels of Jesus Christ. A unique phrase, but one that is not uncommon in Scripture. The Bible often uses parts of the body to express the nature of one's thoughts and emotions. Throughout Hebrew literature, we find that body parts were connected to various elements of emotional thought or of, um, or, or of uh, uh, emotional concern. So that as we think of the heart, we say the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We know that it has nothing to do with that organ, right? That is pumping blood through our bodies per se. And yet the Bible uses this concept of the heart as a means by which to express the seat of our willful and mindful emotion, our compassion, our understanding, our love, and the like. We also see this with any number of body, uh, other body parts. The kidneys are, in fact, somewhat regularly spoken of. When the Bible talks about the reins of your heart, to try the reins, the reins being like the thing which controls you, right? Well, that word reins is actually quite literally the word kidneys. And it speaks toward the deepest elements of our motivations or our intentions the reins. We find the liver being spoken of as the seat of our passion. And then we see this concept of the bowels 
or intestines. And the bowels are the innermost emotion, the deepest levels of feeling, that, 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 that kind of that lowest form of emotional intensity. Um, if we can call it this idea of kind of the un, not, not, un, not raw or even unrestrained, but just the natural emotional um, uh, depth, perhaps. The deepest parts of emotional sensibilities. But notice here, he does say in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He's not speaking of, like I said, raw or untempered emotion. He's saying that as it relates to the outworking of his spiritual love for them, of, of the relationship that he shares with them in Christ, that this is the, the, the deepest set of emotions as it relates to those bowels, right? To that emotional context. They exist as an extension of the life and the power of Christ in him. And Paul has been deeply affected to the very core of his spirit by some things related to this church. This church has deeply affected him. And we see that this, has hap that this effect has, has come in a couple of ways. The first as we have already studied, in the degree to which this church has blessed him. But we also find as we transition into verses 9, 10, 11, that there's a, a real concern in Paul's heart. You perhaps read in 2 Corinthians, and Paul describes there the, the tears that he wept over writing 1 Corinthians because of the error that the church was in. And we know that Paul cared so deeply for the churches that he ministered to for their well-being. When he heard of troubles in the churches, he was deeply concerned by these things. And Paul has heard some things that concern him of Philippi. And it seems at this point that there is nothing of rebuke needed necessarily. But he kind of sees the trajectory they're on. He hears of some things happening in the church and they concern him on a very deep level. And it's within this context that we interpret the words of this epistle that Paul loves this church so much in the Lord that his burden for them is so great that this letter is a direct extension of this love that he has for them. And his expression of desire for them, which again we'll see throughout this letter, which I'll bring up again and again, is that they would have first unity, a Christ-mindedness, and purity, a Christ-likeness. And once again, I believe that this broader context, this strong focus of the book on unity and purity, is the best lens through which to interpret some of Paul's exhortations and statements. So last week I spoke of this in relation to chapter 1, verse 6. And the reason why I gave the uniqueness of the interpretation that I did um, is because of the context within which we find it, right? Because of where we know the letter goes, because of the, the comparison of, of chapter 1 with chapter 4, and then because as we study the language, there's nothing that would necessarily divert us from that concept. And this week I'm going to speak to that same idea. I'm going to talk about another phrase that is commonly used in the church that I believe is being misused and almost ironically so, so that the very way that this phrase is sometimes used actually works in direct contradiction to what Paul is saying, almost a case in point to what Paul is warning against in the way that it has been used at times. And seeking to understand what Paul means within the coherent context of the book of Philippians. And we see this concept, we'll get there in verse 10, as a part of a prayer of Paul for the church. So he just tells them how much his bowels are yearning for them in Christ. And this gives way to a prayer for them. And notice the nature of this prayer. Notice what he's praying for. And, and draw out what we talked about in our Brooks sermon. Draw out the fact that Paul is exhorting them unto unity. Draw out the fact that Yodius and Syntyche are not unified. Draw out the fact that Paul addressed this letter not just to the saints of Philippi, but to the bishops and the deacons. Put all of this together and then think about where this prayer is going. Verse 9, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more 
in knowledge, and in all judgment. Follow the context with me because my teaching is very uh, context-dependent here. Paul says that he thanks God every time he remembers them for their fellowship in the gospel, in that they once and again met his needs, and expresses confidence that their generosity and their love in the gospel would redound for centuries to come. And it is for this reason that the deepest sensibilities of Paul's love and longing for them in Jesus Christ has been stirred up because all was not well in the church. There was division. There was disunity. And as always, when division and disunity come into the church, it threatens the very fabric of their church's effectiveness in the Lord, right? How can a church be effective and be led by the Spirit when its members are not walking in agreement? And uh, I'm going to say this, and this might sound a little bit uh, carnal, but, but please don't take it as such. Now imagine how deeply this church had blessed Paul, right? How once and again in Thessalonica and in Corinth they had sent to his need. And now imagine Paul hears from Epaphroditus that there's disunity in the church. And then Paul thinks about how much of a blessing they've been to him. And he thinks about how much of a danger that disunity could be to the burden and the love that Philippi has to meet the needs of ministers. And Paul sees there not, not a threat to his income, but he sees in that a threat to a ministry that has been such a blessing and that has enabled him to be a blessing to others. It might be likened to the idea that a missionary is on the field and they hear that one of their major supporters, that the church is not well. And sure, certainly there is an element to this of uh, this is a major supporter, but the deeper true spiritual sensibility to that is this church is doing great good. This church is facilitating the gospel getting around the world. And if this church fails so will fail a great ministry, right? I believe that's the spirit of this. That's the spirit of Paul's prayer here. So Paul is concerned in his bowels in Jesus Christ long after this church that their love would abound. That word abound there meaning to be in excess, to go beyond, to exceed. It's the cup that's not simply filling, but that is overflowing. That their love naturally their love toward one another would overflow. And Paul's concern is about their love within this context, that the manner of the abundance of their love would be in knowledge and judgment. Now, both of these words speak not to an ignorant love, not to a randomized love, not to, uh, but to a deliberate love, a knowledgeable love, a careful love filtered through the lens of truth. And this is going to make more sense when we get to verse 10 here about what Paul is probably saying here. A, a love that's keenly aware of, this is where he's going, a love that's keenly aware of what is important and what is not. A love that is keenly aware of what is important and what is not. And as it relates to unity, this is perhaps the most essential concept, understanding what matters and what doesn't. It's amazing how often our conflicts, how often we're tempted to root conflicts in things that don't really matter. Now, I don't say that they don't matter to you, and I don't say that to belittle how they matter to you but rather to express how little they matter compared to things which matter more, compared to things which truly matter. We see this in our children all the time, right? My child gets into their mind something that's very important to them, some toy or some article of clothing or some opportunity. I remember in my early teens, I had this really silly bottle collection. And I didn't really understand a bottle collection so I didn't just collect one of every bottle. Like, I collected every empty bottle I could find. And, you know, I thought I was collecting bottles, but I wasn't. I mean, I was collecting bottles, but I was, I was collecting trash, right? Um, I wasn't collecting one of every bottle. I was collecting bottles. And one day my mom came into the room and decided, what are all these bottles doing here? And she trashed all but one of every bottle. And I just... I just had a, a problem with this. I, I didn't yell at her or anything, but I, I broke down. Like this was devastating to me that she threw away my bottles. I started hyperventilating and the whole thing, right? Because she threw away my bottles. Now, 
It mattered to me, right? But it didn't matter. Do you understand the difference? It mattered to me. But as I grow and as I mature, I look back and I say, wow, that was really dumb because it really didn't matter. And for, for all that maybe there could have been a different method of throwing away those bottles that maybe would have not caused the reaction it did in me, at the end of the day, that was a really bad thing to care about so much. And we see these things, right? Make no mistake, to our children, these things are important. But one of the consolations that we have when we see our child breaking down over something that doesn't matter is we're going to look at them and we're going to say, number one, you're going to get over this. And number two, there's a day you're going to look back on this in maturity and realize that these things didn't really matter. Yes, we're giving away your stuffed animal, but you've got a hundred more of them sitting in that room and this one's tattered and it needs to be thrown away or it needs to be given away. And this one, we're, we're done with this one and I know it's, it's the great love of your life, but you're gonna get through this, right? That's sort of an idea. There are so many more important things and it shouldn't really matter to them, but it does matter to them because of where they are in their lives. And they're even willing to yield some of the things that are more important in order to stand their ground on the little things. My child might be willing to give up dinner in stubbornness over some little thing. Say you either do that, you, you, you either miss dinner or you do this and they choose to miss dinner over something silly and pity. They may be willing to yield obedience and fellowship with their father over some little thing. Things which matter much more, they may be willing to yield for something that they think really matters, but which they'll learn in time really does not. And this perspective only comes as their knowledge and as their judgment grows. Now, we can discipline certain elements of that behavior, but the perspective only comes with time. A crisis is, uh, some of our children's crises, it's really hard for us to relate to them when our crises, when, when, when we relate them to our own, right? Your crisis is, you know, that you, you know, that, that, that you're, you can't find your, your teddy bear, uh, but I get bills in the mail every day, right? But I have a whole church to look after and their interpersonal relationships and their, their, their uh, strengths and their weaknesses and their, their grievances and their spiritual needs and, 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 you know, how much time are we going to put into this teddy bear, right? It matters to them. And I can reflect love to them in showing a measure of care for it. But as they grow, I would hope and expect that they're going to grow beyond those petty concerns and understand what truly matters. We even talked about this this morning, didn't we? That some of our concerns as it relates to money matters are actually, if we look in the Word of God and we relate them properly, somewhat petty compared to the God that owns a cattle on a thousand hills, right? But this only comes with a measure of maturity, a measure of knowledge. And so Paul is praying for this church that their love would abound toward one another in discernment and knowledge, in, 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 a, in, a, in a mature sense here. There are many things that matter in the Christian life. Some matter to certain people more than others. Some matter to certain people and not at all to others. We draw out applications. We see things differently. We impose our personal experiences upon things. We come to different conclusions about them. But there are things then that matter more, that the Bible says are essential. Things which are important, not just to one, but to all. Things which we must make a priority. We read in 1 Timothy, and Paul talks about um, those who do not affirm sound doctrine, and he says, note them. He says, separate from them, withdraw from them. That matters, right? That really matters. We see people like that. It matters so much, Paul says, withdraw from them. He doesn't say that about everyone, does he? To the extent that some things must take priority to the extent that if a biblical priority is threatened, even by some other application of biblical truth or spiritual religious desire within us, we have to shift our priorities to make what matters matter and to perhaps reduce what doesn't to matter less. It is not necessarily a bad thing for my child to have 
their desires and their priorities. It's not a bad thing for my child to place affection on some, some teddy bear. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing that they, that they think that my daughters think of themselves as mom to some teddy bear and they're holding their teddy bear and they're changing their teddy bear's diapers. You know, th th there's value in this, right? But when their loyalty to those desires or their, pro their priorities override what is more important, if things become out of balance, if they begin to shift so deeply into the world of their fantasies that they lose a hold of reality, then something has to change and there has to be a priority shift. Their, their love, their desires, their, 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 their development must abound in knowledge and in judgment, right? Not ignorant. They must set aside what they want for what is necessary. And the priority that Paul speaks here is love. Abounding, not an ignorant love that would say, well, because I love you, I'm, not, I'm going to ignore your sin, right? That, that's not the kind of love that Paul's speaking of. Not a foolish love that would say, I'm going to show love for you at the expense of all other priorities or responsibilities. And not a, uh, not a misprioritized love that says, well, I'm going to show deference to you, but only until you cross me in this way, shape, or form. An abundant love, rather, filtered through knowledge and discernment of what is truly necessary. And this is what we see expressed in verse 10. He says, and this I pray in verse 9, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul's desire is that the love of the church would abound in knowledge, in discernment, a properly related love unto the examination and recognition of those things which are excellent. That word literally meaning most important or better. In order that among themselves they would live in sincerity and without offense one toward another until the day of Christ perpetually. There's so very much to say about this verse. And that being because, again, I believe this verse is regularly taken somewhat out of context. This is one of those verses that's used particularly in our circles. We spoke in Sunday school this morning about the relationship of ourselves and the church to this idea of excellence, right? We thought about Solomon and building the temple and how everything was overlaid in gold and it was beautiful and it was lavish and, uh, and then how that carried over into the New Testament church, right? And how it carried over into Catholicism and they build the Gothic cathedrals and they're beautiful in the stained glass and the, the, the stonework and the carvings and the murals and, uh, and, and the beautiful tapestries and, and all of these things. And it was meant to reflect the, the riches of the kingdom of God and it's meant to reflect the awe that one should feel in God's presence and it's meant to reflect reverence and all the spires are meant to, everything pointing up to the heavens, right? And, and, and that was kind of that original idea to this idea. And, and that, that's a concept of, if you, if you want to call it this, excellence, right? That we are going to worship the Lord in excellence. And we see that, that idea carried over into our churches uh, as in, in the promotion of Christian excellence and that in our manner of worship and in our deportment and in our dress and in our music and in our presentation, we are going to do that which is excellent, uh, proving those things which are excellent. And, and let me just say this. I don't disagree in the, in the concept of Christian excellence. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. And as a matter of fact, I think in a somewhat ironic turn, when a person is standing behind a pulpit and they are heavily emphasizing those elements of Christian excellence and using this verse to do it, it's quite possible that they could be using this verse to try to prove the exact thing that Paul is trying to disprove. That they're using this verse to try to push the very thing that Paul is trying to warn against which is an imbalance, elevating the things that don't matter as much at the expense of the things that matter more. And again, I'm not saying that Christian excellence doesn't matter, but there are some things that might need to take precedence over that. And, and I think sometimes this passage can be misused in that way. And we'll perhaps see this as I continue to 
walk you through. Again, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm having to defend myself a little bit here through this, defend my interpretation, but that's a good thing because when I have to defend my interpretation, you get all the facts and you're going to get all the facts this evening. So the key to this, other than simply knowing what the language is saying, that this word here quite literally means that which is better or that which is superior, we'll come to presently see as we walk through this word excellent. It's a very strange word in the New Testament as it relates to its usage. The word itself speaks most specifically or literally of something which is carried through something else. So the idea of, if, if I said I, I, carried, I carried the shovel through the church to get to the other side of the church to shovel the snow. I might use this very word, the idea of carrying through. We find it used that way in Mark chapter 16, verse 11. The Bible says, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. So we have this idea, the word there, should carry any vessel through the temple, uh, is our word here, diaphero, to carry through, to bear through. We also find a similar usage in Acts chapter 13, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was published throughout all the region. That the word of the Lord was born through the region. But while this would be the most literal meaning of this word, this is not the primary way the word was used in the New Testament. So the word carried far more weight idiomatically, if we can say it this way, than it did literally. And we have plenty of words in English that do that. More people likely use the word cool to mean interesting or trendy or fun than to actually express something's temperature, right? I guarantee you more people use the word Google to mean search for something online than they do to actually reference the number Google. Did you know Google's a number? That, that's where it came from. It's one with 100 zeros after it, expressed by 10 to the 100 power. In much the same way, this word, regardless of its literal meaning, came to be far more used as a term of, well, an expression of excellence, right? So we read in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are they not much more born through than you? Are they not much better? Or are you, excuse me, are ye not much better than they? Differing, better, more excellent than they? Matthew 12, 12. How much more, how much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days, right? So we have this idea here again. Man is superior, more excellent than the sheep. Jesus is not calling us unto excellence here. He, it's a comparative statement. Man is more excellent. Man is better than sheep. Man is better, more excellent than the fowls of the air, from Matthew 6. Romans chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Behold, Paul says to the Romans, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God, and knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent. Being instructed out of the law, right? So you weigh things in the balance, and you know what wisdom dictates is better. And this is the idea. This is the word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars. For one star differeth from another star in glory. There is a differing. There is, a, there, there is one star that, that has a different. And in this case, it's not necessarily better, right? As a matter of fact, um, that would be the opposite of what Paul is saying here in context. He says, each one has a very different manifest glory. But just because one is different from the other doesn't mean one is necessarily better than the other. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. There is no greater claim to authority that an heir has than a servant has when they are children. So that of the 13 uses in the New Testament of this word, all but three of them carry this idea of something which differs with the primary association to that being one thing being more excellent than another. So then Paul's prayer for the church is that they would abound in love in the context of knowledge and of judgment 
And notice that while our King James Bible uses the conjunction that at the beginning of this verse, that ye may approve things which are excellent. The Greek conjunction is uh, actually there, and you, I, I hope you regularly can follow how I highlight these things. The first highlight is the first word, right, uh, on there, and this one has a bunch of them. So the conjunction literally means into or unto or to, so that it might read, uh, this idea might be, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment unto the approval of the things which are excellent. Or unto the approval, unto the recognition, unto the discernment of that which is better, that which is more needful, that which is more excellent. And then he says, that ye may be sincere and without offense. Uh, without offense till the day of Christ. And notice that this, that conjunction is a very different Greek word. This is hena, literally meaning in order that. In order that. So the objective of this process of seeking unto a discernment of what is more important so that their love may be rooted in that which is most important is driven by this knowledge and discerning love in order that the body might live in a manner that is both sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. So, so, you know, this is one big thought here, right? I hope you're following it with me. Paul says, I want you to learn to love. I want you to learn to have a discerning and a knowledgeable love. I want you to learn to have a discerning and a knowledgeable love that brings you to a recognition and an approval, a discernment and examination of the things which are most excellent, of the things which are most important, in order that you can operate in this love in a manner that is both sincere and without offense. Do you see how Paul is pointing towards uh, the potential of a problem of disunity here? You see why, where, 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 I, where I'm coming from with this? That I believe that this prayer is, when combined with the fact that chapter 2 is about Christ-likeness and chapter 4 is about Besiciotis and Syntyche, that they, that they uh, have find this measure of unity, that they be like-minded, that we see here that Paul is, is concerned. That they're that they, they might be getting along with one another, but there's disunity, and that the disunity that Paul is hearing about is a reflection of a level of immaturity within, within the, the, the ranks. That their disunity is a reflection of, of, of them having a, a wrong set of priorities. That they're, that, that, they're getting, that they're being disunified over things that don't matter as much that they have failed to discern what is excellent, what is most important, and that they're not expressing love toward one another as a reflection of the things that they know uh, by, by maturity and by discernment and by knowledge and by judgment are the things that are most excellent. Now let's talk about what that last phrase means, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Paul says the object of this discernment is sincerity and inoffense. This word sincere does not necessarily mean what it's come to mean today, what we've come to take it to mean today. The concept of sincerity here literally means to be judged by sunlight. Have you ever looked at something in the dark and thought you knew what it looked like? And then you flicked on a light or you've opened up a curtain or you've walked outside or sunlight has hit that thing and it's looked quite different than what you thought it looked like in the dark. Maybe you've just peeked at a mirror real quick and said, hey, I look okay for the day. And then you flick on a light and go, ah, no, I don't. Uh, the, you know, uh, the darkness made me miss something, right? Uh, this idea to be judged by sunlight, that we would be sincere. Um, the phrase that's often used is sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? That, that when things are out in the open, then they're able to be judged on their own merit. That I'm not going to come to you and tell you a bunch of things from my perspective and say, this is how it is because it's my perspective. I'm going to lay before you everything that happened. And then that sunlight is what is going to give you a, a knowledge as to what is going on, right? That sort of an idea. I, I, I'm really a big prop, uh, proponent of that as it relates to events in the church. 
uh, I don't want gossip. I don't want rumors. I don't want those things. So if something's going on and you need to know, I'm going to tell you everything I can possibly tell you without breaching confidence because I don't want there to be that. That's why our website is like a thousand pages long uh, because I don't want there to be secrets about our church. I want you to know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And I, I, I want it all out in the open on, on purpose, right? And this is kind of that idea. This is the idea of sincerity, clarity, judged by sunlight. You've shined the light on your own heart, your own motives, your own interactions, and they've been found to be right. Not sincere, meaning that you truly believe what you're saying. There are plenty of people who are sincere in this world and they are sincerely wrong, right? But the idea is that within our interaction, we have truly sought to love one another in knowledge and in judgment and have sincerely sought to the best things, sincerely thought to the things that are most excellent, sincerely uh, sought unto that which is objectively, that which objectively matters without our preconceived notions and without our personal priorities and without our inherent biases getting in the way of what sunlight has shown onto things and then to judge them rightly. It's one thing if we're walking in the darkness and then we are judging things the way we're judging things because we don't see things clearly. It's another thing when sunlight shines on something and in the, in the brightness of day, I see that it's purple and I say that it's green because I don't want to admit it's purple, right? As soon as the sunlight shines on that and I start saying it's something other than what it is, I know, everyone around me knows I'm being disingenuous. Everyone around me knows it. And I know it too. And that's fine. I can be disingenuous. Don't, don't expect anyone to make any decisions based upon my disingenuous idea. We see this in politics today, right? Uh, the information age has shown an awful lot of sunlight on some things that had been darkened for a long, long time. And that sunlight has become a great disinfectant. And one might question in their minds when these controversies come up in politics and they say, well, if what is being said is actually said, then this is a real problem. And then sunlight shines on you and you're like, oh, okay. Done. And then everyone's still saying, no, it's the end of the world. And you say, no, no. As soon as sunlight shined on it, I realized that this is not a big deal. We can move on from this. This is just, this is just games at this point, right? That's the idea here. We want to be sincere so that we can say in good conscience that we've approved that which is important. We want sunlight to shine down on our interactions one with another and, and, and be clear with one another and, be, uh, and have a, a biblically-based understanding of what matters and what doesn't, of what is most excellent and what is less important. Not that it's not important to you, but what matters the most. And then in that, be both sincere Honest, open, sunlight disinfecting, and inoffensive, faultless toward one another. This idea here of in offense, without offense. It's not offense like the stumbling block idea in the New Testament. You know, when, when the Bible talks about Jesus Christ being a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling, that idea is that he's a stumbling block to those who don't have faith, right? This is not that idea. This is not that word. Not here that you would avoid putting a cause of stumbling before a brother. That's more the weaker brethren principle. We're not talking about that. That's important as well, naturally. But rather, this is the idea that there's no fault. Nothing that you can point to and say that there was a matter of fault, that there was some, uh, that, that, that um, your action was to be blamed, that there was a wrong toward one another. Or again, that you all are looking at the same thing in the sunlight and someone is pretending it's something it's not. At fault in this. That someone was outside the bounds of this discerning love and approval of those things which are most important. That there's no ulterior motive to your actions. That everything is upright. That everything is decent. How rare is it that people can say that their interactions one with another are sincere and without offense? How often are our interactions tainted by insincerity or personal offense that we simply refuse to yield? Faults through selfishness or personal priorities. A refusal to set aside our own ideas. One more thought on this verse before we try to pull it all together. Take careful note of the final phrase, till the day of Christ. We're only 10 verses into the book, but this is not the first time we've seen that phrase, is it? Recall with me now the fact that we are still effectively in Paul's introduction to the letter. 
To this end, if we interpret this introduction to be more or less Paul's introduction to the letter, purpose statement and its authorship, then we recognize that to understand fully what these things are that Paul is saying are excellent, to examine with him our actions so that in a discerning love we can be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, we need to walk through the entire book, right? But we find a parallel with verse 6 and verse 10 here that I want to highlight. Within the context of our interpretation of these verses, my interpretation of these verses, which I acknowledge is a bit non-standard, Paul expresses confidence in verse 6 that the things which began by their actions would continue until the day of Christ, right? And then he expresses in his prayer and desire for them in verse 10 that they would operate in a manner that is sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. And I think that there's a connection between these two. I think that what Paul is saying is, if you want to continue to be effective in ministry until the day of Christ, you would better get your house in order as it relates to unity and sincerity and without offense because the only way that you're going to continue to be effective until the day of Christ is if your sincerity and your inoffensiveness in a, in a discerning and a knowledgeable love abounds until the day of Christ. That there is a link between them. That when the sincerity and the inoffensiveness, that when the... the, the uh, abounding in love one toward another and the approving of things which are more excellent, when that breaks down, so too then will break down your effectiveness in ministry. I think this parallelism is too clear for us to ignore. When you see the fingerprints of a ministry upon the lives of those who are directly impacted by it, but which due to their inability to discern what was and what was not important, and then pursue that which is excellent with sincerity and inoffensiveness without blame one toward another, you'll see a ministry that begins to lose its effectiveness. To this end, Paul was moved deeply. He longed after the church in the bowels of Jesus Christ that they would abound in knowledgeable love by discerning the things which truly mattered in order that they operate among one another in the light of daylight inoffensively, without fault one toward another until Christ's return so that they can continue to be effective in ministry until Christ's return. And as they do this, it will produce a specific result that we find in verse 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ into the glory and praise of God as they walk in unity, as they approve those things which really matter, as they bring lower on the table the things which matter less in the discerning way, right? Not as children saying, but this really matters to me. Don't you dare, pastor, throw away my bottle collection, right? As we actually discern what matters, what is biblically relevant, what is most important, and we put things in the proper order and we abound one toward another in that discerning love, in sincerity and in, in inoffensiveness, then we will be in the place where Christ can fill us with the fruits of righteousness by Jesus Christ, and we can be to his praise and to his glory. Let's apply. Point number one, understand that some things matter more than others. This is what Paul is preparing the church to receive. Remember, as I just said, this is something which the whole book will inform us on. So this is the intro. This is us gearing up. Now it's in your mind. Some things matter more than others. What's Paul going to say really matters? That's what we're looking for here, okay? To receive this with humility and gladness, that there are in reality things which might matter to you or matter to me, but which might need to be in part, in context, set aside for things which matter more at times. Don't read into this compromise of biblical truth. That's not what I'm saying this evening. Don't read into this a breakdown of biblical separation. Well, the gospel matters more, so it doesn't matter how we share it. We'll talk about that next week. Not what Paul is saying. 
but do read into this a hierarchy of priorities by which those things which are excellent, are most important, are pursued to their fullest. And here's the thing. If sunlight is shining on those, those are things that none of us are going to disagree with. And if we are disagreeing with it because sunlight's shining on it, we're going to know who is with offense. We're going to know who's disingenuous. And it's going to be obvious that they're disingenuous. And it is unto this which I ask the church to wrap your minds around this evening, to prepare yourself to receive throughout this series, that there are some things which you and I might hold dear as it relates to our preferences, our expectations, our ideals, our ideas, but which must be set aside for the sake of things which are, if we may put it this way, simply more important. I use this phrase commonly. This is something which matters for this, this, and reason, but let's not split the church over it right? What I'm saying there is there are things which are more important than this, that we have a reason why we hold to this. There's a reason why we think this way, that this is important to us for these reasons, but this would not be something that would be so important that we are, need to go our separate ways over it, right? That is an approval of, of something which is more excellent. It is more important that we stay together than that we all agree on this issue. That's, that, that's the mindset there. We need to humbly pray that we might have God's mind in these matters. We need to carefully seek unto them in ourselves and then come together that we may seek unto them together. Leading us naturally to our second point. Understand that God is clear about the things which matter most to him. I've often exhorted us as a body that we be not so busy worrying about the things that exist between the lines of scripture that we fail to understand and obey the things that are on the lines of scripture. I know that prophecy is important. I spent better than a year preaching through Revelation. Do not misinterpret what I'm saying here to say that prophecy is not important. But it does grieve me that there are entire ministries wrapped around prophecy, but not around the Sermon on the Mount. You can trace love, charity, through every book of the Bible. And I know you can find prophecy in them too. You can see Paul explicitly say, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I'm as a sounding brass and as a tinkling cymbal. And though I have all knowledge, right? Yet if I have not charity, I am as nothing. And yet, we spend significantly more time at times focusing upon those things than we would upon charity. And again, this is not a statement about prophecy itself or anything of the sort. But what I'm saying is, God has made very clear to us the things which are most important to him. Through repetition, through teaching, in the lives of the apostles, in the lives of our Lord, in Old Testament, pro prophetic utterances. The principle can certainly apply toward things such as fables and endless genealogies, debates that as it relates to conspiracies, connecting the dots. All of those things are certainly reading between the lines, and, we, and those things are, are things that would apply to that statement that I talked about. But it can also speak of the things that relate to our church the things that we hold in distinction, things which we choose to foster in order to bring about unity and decency and orderliness and protection within the body, but which are things that we have drawn out if we may call them extra biblical. And while they are important to us, and that is fine, they dare not usurp the deeper commands of Scripture. The differences, we might say, between the precepts of the Word of God and the principles we draw from the Word of God, the standards we erect in our lives in order to best align with what we understand from Scripture, and we can take this principle even one step further, so that there are things which the Bible teaches or acknowledges, but which are not as important as other things. Is this not what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is charity. Did, he, did Paul not call charity the bond of perfectness in Colossians, the glue which holds the rest together? 
Is there not a hierarchy even in the Word of God as it relates to the principles of God, uh, of, of God's Word? Now, that doesn't mean we choose one to the expense of others, right? We don't choose God's grace to the expense of His holiness. He is both gracious and holy. He is love and He is righteousness. We understand that those two can be exist together. But this is the principle that Paul is exhorting us here. We see it in the principle of the weaker brethren. There are things which, which matter to you. There are things which you feel you are, you are free to do. Or there are things which you feel bound not to do. And yet Paul says, Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him that eateth not judge him that eateth. Right? And so we see in this a statement of that which matters more. It matters more that I love my brother than that I judge him on the, the, the things he's choosing to or not to eat. We can see this in the principles of doctrine and practice. Let me illustrate such a principle. As, I, as I've brought you to 1 Corinthians 13 in, in principle, let me bring it to you literally. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then the gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gift of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And of course the answer is no. Go tell that to the charismatic church that demands it of them, of people. But the answer is no, all don't do those things. Verse 31, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Covet the best ones. Covet the ones which are most exemplified in the church. And by the way, in, in these passages, Paul says that that is speaking with, in your known tongue, right? He says, I'd rather speak five words in my own tongue than a thousand words in, in an unknown tongue. He says, covet earnestly the best gifts. And he says, yet I show unto you a more excellent way. I, I'm going to show you something even better though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned, though I go to martyrdom and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Paul speaks of spiritual gifts. He calls for those gifts to be exercised properly within the body. He states that they should honor one another with the gifts that they've been given. And he calls for them to seek the best gifts. And then he says, for all these desires for gifts, for function and ability within the body, I hope you want to find the means by which you can serve this body through a unique and a particular spiritual gift that God has given you. I hope that you've identified that or you're working to identify that and you want to serve the body with it. But for all of that, Paul says there's something that is more important that all of us can do every day. There's a more excellent way, not, by the way, the same word more excellent that we find in Philippians 1. I didn't highlight it. And then Paul goes on to talk about love. It would have been nice if it was the same word. It would have wrapped my sermon in a bow real nicely, but it's not the same word. You may speak with tongues, Paul says, of men and of angels. But if you don't have charity, your words are just noise. You may have a deep understanding of the things of God, be able to put all of those pieces together, see the big picture, narrow in on, on something profound and be able to express it tremendously well. You, ha you may have that faith that Jesus says, that faith of a mustard seed by which you can move mountains. You can believe God's promises without a second of hesitation. But if you don't have charity to undergird it, you are nothing, Paul says. You're nothing. And I use this illustration specifically because I believe it not only illustrates my point that there are certain things which are just so much more important than others in the body, but also to draw a distinct link between what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and what Paul is praying for in Philippi. And this I pray, Paul wrote in Philippians 1.9, that your love might abound in knowledge and in all judgment. That is the same word. Agape, right? Paul says, what I want to see in this church is an abundance of love. The first Corinthians 
principle. Paul founds the very essence of the church's success in them bearing the fruit of righteousness upon the abundance of their love. A love that approves things which are best. A love which produces a sincerity and an inoffensiveness one toward another. But if it's going to start anywhere, it's going to start here. With us elevating love to the highest ideal in our midst. First Corinthians love, right? Not, not a undiscerning raw love, but that discerning, knowledgeable, and judging love. And if you and I don't love one another, if the church is not seeking one another's best, if the church gets distracted and offended and selfish and conceited, then whatever we might otherwise have in capacity to expound truth, in fellowship one with another, in music, in whatever, whatever our church might have will profit us nothing if we don't first approve that which is excellent, if we don't elevate love. Just briefly then, let's remember what love looks like. And as I read this list, of which I taught on not too long ago, ask yourself if this is how we interact with our body. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. There is only one thing that endures from generation to generation within the scope of the church of God. It is not our distinctives per se, our methods of worship per se, the gifts that we bring to bear within the body per se, my style of expositional preaching per se. These things are great. We hold to them. We have reasons. We're not going to give them up. We're not, this is not a message preaching compromise. But those things are not the things that's going, that are going to last. Those are the framework to keep us grounded in love. And when that framework begins to become more important than love, then we are trading that which is eternal for that which is temporal. Make no mistake. Charity will never cease. Even among the three great virtues, now abideth these three, faith, hope, and charity. But the greatest of these is charity. We must set our hearts upon it. It must be the context within which we operate. It must be the context within which we minister. It must be the context within we, which we interact. For if we fail at this, nothing else really matters. And God has made this very clear. And so think about this in your family. Think about this with grievances. Think about this with your children. Think about how often your children might do something that you don't want or might disappoint or might not be quite where you want them or, or, or how a sibling might do something and your sibling is a little rough around the edges, but your love is able to make up the difference, isn't it? Your sibling may not quite think the way you do, but your love is able to make up the difference. You may not quite understand the way dad thinks. It may, and there's a clash of personalities there, but the love makes up the difference, right? It needs to happen in the body, brethren. Again, we're not talking about brother comes home and stole something from the store and your love is going to make up the difference, right? We're not talking about sin. We're not talking about compromise. We're talking about things which are more excellent. We're talking about prioritization here. Final point. Understand that through this purified unity, only through this purified unity, can our church bear fruit and glorify God. Love is the foundation by which we seek unto Christ-mindedness and Christ-likeness. We lay this foundation and then we build on that foundation. Only through this Christ-mindedness and like-mindedness built on the foundation of, of, a, uh, of a properly knowledgeable and judged love 
can we then bear the fruit of righteousness and thus bring glory to God through our church? And I want to have that kind of a church. I want an effective church. I hope you do too. I'm convinced that the Lord laid this series on my heart many months ago because he has a message which needs to be heard by us in this time. That we may be sincere and without offense, being filled with the fruits of righteousness unto the praise and the glory of God. And as a church, we must be this. We must seek unto it together. For if we do not, regardless of all of the other virtues that we have, we will not be what we could be in Christ. So let us frame our minds upon it. Let us prepare our hearts for it. Let us prepare our hearts to seek unto that which God says is most excellent. Let us prioritize that which God will tell us and show us through this book in Philippians what it is that we need to have our minds upon. And let us be determined that we're going to place our minds upon those things that God has placed his mind upon for his praise and for his glory. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.